Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics at Washington. This episode is about Britain's trade deals. Not its most important one, the one with the EU, but the other ones. The UK has a bunch of trade deals through its EU membership. It has deals with Canada, Mexico, and South Korea. And some of these deals are really deep, like it has with Switzerland, or Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, who are part of the European Economic Area, or the EEA. But once Brexit happens, technically these deals won't apply anymore. We spoke to Michael Gassiorek of the UK Trade Policy Observatory, which is based in the University of Sussex. He explained how important these deals are, and why making sure they carry over could be really tough. So first we asked Michael to explain the problem. Okay, so clearly the main thing for the UK to sort out is its deal with the EU. That should be the main thing to focus on. The EU happens to have about 37 agreements with 67 other countries, and they account for quite a lot of UK trade. And those agreements are already in place. When we leave the EU in just over a year's time, we will no longer be party to those trade agreements. So while on the one hand, it might be nice to think about signing a trade agreement with America or Japan, on the other hand, it's pretty important to focus on the agreements that we already have and make sure that we can roll those over. That sounds very important. So what's at stake in those deals? How much trade do these relevant countries account for? In aggregate, these countries account for about 15% of UK exports of goods and about 15% of UK imports of goods. So it's non-negligible. It is reasonably significant. It's not nearly as important as the EU. And there are some individual other countries which are not part of these free trade agreements, which are quite important. The US, for example, is about 10% of our trade, ballpark figure. But in aggregate, they do add up. In services, the figures are slightly smaller. It's probably about 12% of exports, about 10 or less percent of imports, but that only captures a little bit of the services trade. There's quite a lot of services trade which the stats just cannot capture, such as uh, cross-border investment flows. Could you just describe what kinds of agreements these things are? There's quite a large spectrum of the kinds of relationship that the EU has forged. Okay, so they range quite widely, as you've rightly said. So the most recent agreements are the ones, for example, with Canada, the one with Korea, um, and the one that they've almost finalized with Japan. And those are known as really deep and comprehensive free trade agreements. And the reason for that is that they cover both trade and goods and all sorts of other areas, the non-tariff measures to trade. They will cover things such as non-tariff barriers to trade, such as standards, conformity assessment, intellectual protection, government procurement, and so on. Older deals such as, for example, with some of the Mediterranean countries, southern Mediterranean countries like Morocco and Tunisia and so on, tend to focus more on trading goods, don't have those deep liberalisation provisions, although the EU is keen to move them in that direction. But then there's a whole other category, which is the really, really deep trade deals with places like Switzerland, Norway... Could you talk about those? Yes. Okay. The really super deep agreements are the ones, you're quite right, with Norway and Switzerland. And they're really deep because those countries essentially have access to the single market. So they've agreed to sign up to the single market rules and regulations. They have no say in how those rules and regulations are made. 
They have simply agreed that through the free trade agreement, they wish to sign up to the single market, which means they have much more access to the EU market than in any of the other agreements. Essentially, one way of thinking about this is if, let's say, you're a UK firm, if you're a member of the single market, it's just as easy to produce a good in Birmingham and sell it in Manchester as it is to sell it in Paris or in Frankfurt. You can ship goods anywhere in the EU. Providing you can sell it in one market, you're allowed to sell it in any other EU market. If you're not a member of the single market, which applies to all the other existing FTAs, other than the EEA ones, which we just mentioned, then that rule does not apply. But as a result of Britain leaving the single market, it will now have to, separately to the one with the EU, it will have to re-establish its trading relationship with countries like Switzerland and countries that aren't in the EU but are still a member of the single market. Correct. By leaving the EU, and in particular by leaving the EU customs union. So it is possible to leave the EU and not leave the customs union. And if we stayed in the customs union, we would still be a party to these agreements. But the government has made it very clear that it wants to leave the customs union, even though it might choose subsequently to sign another customs union, which would be identical. But even if it did that, it would have to then renegotiate agreements with all the EEA countries, such as Norway, and with Switzerland, which would be a potentially difficult task to achieve. It's not obvious that those countries would wish to just sign up and roll over the agreements in the way they currently are. And that also applies to the agreements with Korea and Canada and Chile and so on. It's far from obvious that those partner countries will wish to just sign up to rolling over the agreements. We've got a lot of trade agreements out there. What can we say about how exposed the United Kingdom is actually going to be if it didn't manage to grandfather in all of these free trade agreements? That's a tricky question to answer. The most natural way to think about exposure is, well, how much do we trade with these countries? And we trade about 15% in aggregate. With any individual country, it's going to be less than that. So I think I'm right in saying that the share of Korean trade with the UK is about 2%. So each individual country on its own is directly not hugely important, but together they add up to quite a lot. There's a second way in which we're potentially quite exposed or more exposed than those raw statistics might uh, show, which is to do with the way we're engaged in international supply chains. So approximately between 55 and 60 percent of what we import from these free trade countries, free trade area countries such as Korea, are all intermediate goods. Those intermediate goods enter the UK supply chain and then the UK almost certainly will wish to export some of the goods that use those intermediates. Whether it can easily do so, for example, export them to the EU or not, will depend on something quite complex, which is called rules of origin. Uh, we're a friend of rules of origin. <laughs> oh, no good. Podcast. I'm glad to hear it. So it will really depend on what the UK manages to agree with the EU on rules of origin and what it manages to agree with, let's say, Korea or Canada on rules of origin. So the point is, if the UK can't manage to sort out satisfactory rules of origin with its free trade agreements, this is likely to impact on UK, EU and FDA partner supply chains, so it matters to all countries. What about different levels of depth among these deals? I mean, presumably some slash tariffs much more than others, and therefore one could lose much more if we lost those deals. There are various ways to think about depth. The most obvious way to think about depth is the way you've just said, which is to think about the number of tariffs. So Norway, for example, happens to be one of our top 
trading partners amongst the FTA countries. But out of the top 100 products the UK exports to Norway, there's only four of them that would face tariffs. So all the other goods don't face tariffs. Equally, on what we import from Norway, a lot of that is mineral fuels, it's petrol, and there's very, very low tariff on that. So that's not particularly important. But tariffs are only part of the story. Increasingly in today's modern world, in order to gain access to markets, you've got to be able to produce to the required standards, you've got to show conformity assessment with those standards, and that's all these non-tariff measures or non-tariff barriers, which can often be significantly higher. Can I just stop you there and just define quickly, you said conformity assessment a couple of times. Could yes. you just, just define what that is? Okay. So I mentioned earlier that in order to sell a good currently in the EU, provided you can sell it in the UK, you can sell it anywhere in the EU. If I produce a good here in the UK, I can't just sell it in the Canadian market. I've got to be able to show, prove that I have produced the good to the appropriate Canadian standards. I've got to show that I conform to those standards. So let's say that I want to export a mobile phone to Canada. That's where that applies. Services is another whole ballgame because services have different regulatory standards in different countries. And even within the EU, they have different standards. So, for example, an English lawyer cannot just work in Austria because Austrian law prohibits that. So there's all sorts of restrictions on the provision of services across countries. And these really much deeper agreements, such as with Korea and Canada, increasingly allow for some services liberalisation. If we don't roll over those free trade agreements, then the UK is unlikely to be able to have access to the Korean market or equivalently to the Canadian market for those types of services. And given that the UK is largely a service economy, 70% of our GDP of services, and services exports are an important part of what we do, in particular financial services and business services, this is likely to mean that those sectors will see a hit. Okay, so grandfathering these trade deals really matters. The UK's services exports could be hit. Its manufactured goods could suddenly not conform to other countries' standards. But also, there could be problems if it wants to import goods, and that, that could create issues for British production and also British exports in turn. So some in the UK say this should simply be a matter of copy and paste. You just take the old text, everywhere it says the EU, you strip it out and you replace it with the UK, and that's it. But others, including you, say that's not actually going to be so easy. So generally, why is it the case? So there are several reasons why it might not be so easy. The first reason is, even if in a sort of legal sense, you could just cut out the EU and put in the UK instead, that requires the other country to agree to it. Various UK government ministers have repeatedly said that all these FTA countries are in principle willing to roll over these free trade agreements. But being willing and signing on the dotted line is a completely different matter. So just last week, there were various reports in the press how the Korean government, the Chilean government, the Peruvian government are all apparently saying, well, yes, we are keen on having a free trade agreement with you, the UK, but actually we want to renegotiate it a little bit. So that immediately becomes not a cut and paste job because actually now you're negotiating over something. The UK has also, for example, said that it wants to reassert control over its fishing policy and fishing rights in UK territorial waters. If it does so, it's likely to upset some of the EEA member countries, such as Norway and Iceland. It's unlikely that Norway and Iceland will just agree to roll over some agreement with the UK if the UK is saying, but hang on a sec, we're going to renegotiate a bit of our agreement with you to do with fisheries, in which case they're likely to come back and say, OK, well, we want something in return or we don't agree with that. And even when you get to the renegotiation, 
there are four key areas which might matter for making it more difficult to renegotiate and where even though you might think it's an agreement, let's say between the UK and Korea or UK and Canada, actually you probably need to involve the EU a little bit in those discussions. And that revolves around to some of the stuff we talked about before, which is rules of origin, something called the MFN clause in these agreements, tariff rate quotas and mutual recognition of standards. Okay, let's get into the weeds. So, first of all, rules of origin. As listeners hopefully should be aware from other episodes, rules of origin define what counts as a product that applies underneath a trade deal for tariff-free treatment. Yeah, that's pretty much correct. Let me just try and clarify a little bit. So, imagine that you've got... UK has a free trade agreement with the EU, the EU has a free trade agreement with Korea, and Korea has a free trade agreement with the UK. So, all three countries have bilateral free trade agreements with each other. So that means that in principle the UK can sell to the EU duty-free providing that the good has been made in the UK. But in this globalised world, goods increasingly use parts from lots of other countries. So suppose the UK uses parts from Korea. The question is, how much Korean bits can go into a UK good and still be exported to the EU for it to qualify to have that preferential access? So there are rules that govern it. Those are the rules of origin. Now, the slightly bizarre thing is that it's possible that a Korean intermediate could be sold to the EU directly duty-free. So a Korea can sell a car part to the, into the EU market completely free. But if it sells it to the UK, the UK uses it in the production of a car, then there's not enough UK value added in the good. So when the UK sells the car to the EU, it has to pay a tariff. There are tariffs that are levied even though that input could have been exported directly to the EU from Korea duty-free. And that's a little bit bizarre. So I would say it's in every country's interest to try and get diagonal accumulation, which is a way of resolving this problem. It's a bit of a techie term, but there are ways around this, and one of the main ways around this is something which is called diagonal accumulation. And that's basically when you say, okay, there are these three separate bilateral trade agreements and will allow you to kind of count all of the content and add it up so it accumulates. Spot on. But note that that means that in order to have diagonal accumulation, all three countries have to agree to this. So the EU has to agree to it, Korea has to agree to it, and the UK has to agree to it. So the UK might think it can just talk to Korea to roll over the free trade agreement, but if it wants diagonal accumulation, it's got to get the EU's agreement on this. And the EU tends to be quite difficult about this. Rules of origin are already pretty complicated in the two-country case. Now you add in three free trade agreements and it, it gets even worse. Okay, take us on to the next one, Michael. Most favored nation, non-discrimination. What's the complexity there? The complexity there, and this relates specifically to services liberalization and investment liberalization, and most particularly to the agreements with Korea and Canada. So the EU has already signed those agreements with a certain amount of liberalization and services and a certain amount of liberalization of investment, which it will argue is really you know, quite a lot of liberalization. It's done quite well. There's a clause in that agreement, in those agreements that say, if you subsequently sign a free trade agreement with any other country which offers more liberalization, deeper liberalization, then you're going to have to offer it to us, i.e. Korea and Canada as well. So that causes a problem because the UK has said 
time and time again that it wants a special deal with the EU. What does the UK mean by that? It means it wants a really special deal on services and investment. But if the EU agrees to that with the UK, then it's going to have to offer that same special deal to Korea and Canada, and it may not wish to do so. Hang on, but this is a problem when it comes to agreeing the EU-UK deal. This isn't a problem with the UK agreeing to roll over these other deals with these th third countries. This is a reason why these third countries make agreeing the deal with the EU harder, right? That is true from the EU's perspective, because the EU has already signed those free trade agreements with that MFN clause, but it also applies, has an impact on the UK. So if the UK were to roll over the agreement with Korea and Canada, let's say that Korea and Canada said, yeah, no problem, sign on the dotted line, let's do this straight away, let's do this by March 2019, then the UK has then signed up to that MFN clause, and then when the UK is subsequently negotiating with the EU, and let's say it does manage to negotiate a super deep deal with the EU, it's going to have to offer that MFN clause to Korea and Canada. So that means that the UK actually might not wish to roll over the agreement quite in that form now because it's worried about the MFN clause. It just muddies the water and complicates things for the negotiations. Got it. So tariff rate quotas, why are they difficult when the UK is trying to disentangle itself from the EU and re-establish these relationships with these third countries? The issue with tariff rate quotas is the following. So for certain goods, and typically agricultural goods, the type of restriction that applies is that a certain country is allowed to export a certain quantity of that good to the EU market. If the UK leaves the EU, then there's a question of how to divide up that tariff rate quota. Suppose there is some supplier that sells to the UK that then it goes on to the EU. They may feel that as a result of the UK leaving the EU, they are now being disadvantaged. So they are likely to want to try and renegotiate those tariff rate quotas. The quota that they are allowed to sell to the EU and the quota that they are allowed to sell into the UK. Sure, but the UK is going to face this problem with every single country in the world with which the EU has a tariff rate quota. It's not specific to countries with which the EU has existing FTAs. Quite right. So it, it applies to all sorts of countries where tariff rate quotas apply. But if the UK is trying to roll over a particular free trade agreement, let's say it's with Canada, then the issue of tariff rate quotas is likely to emerge. And if the issue of tariff rate quotas emerges, again, that involves the EU. It's no longer simply a bilateral issue between the UK and Canada, because the quota is an EU-wide quota and somehow needs to be cut up, redistributed between the UK and the EU, you've got to involve the EU again. So I can see that when the UK is trying to replicate its trade deals outside of the EU, the issue of having conforming standards might be a problem if the whole Brexiteer's dream is that Britain now gets to set its own rules, uh, accepting regulatory alignment with these third countries would seem to undermine that. Okay, so to some extent I think that's true. So the issue of standards is that in order to sell into any particular market, you've got to produce the good to that standard, 
but it's not enough simply to produce the good to the standard of that market. You've got to prove that you've produced the good to that standard, and that means that testing has to take place, some form of testing and certification. One way of doing that is to have an agreement with particular countries that we will agree that our testing and certification procedures, let's say the UK's, are acceptable to, let's say, Canada, and providing we've tested it in the UK and the good is shipped over to Canada, it doesn't need to be retested again in Canada. And we, will want, we may well want the same sort of agreement with the EU or with Korea, with lots of other countries. The difficulty is that what you really want to have is an agreement on the precisely as I've just said, on that mutual recognition of conformity assessment. The EU's current policy on this is it will only agree such clauses in free trade agreements if those countries' standards and regulations are the same as the EU's. Otherwise, it doesn't want to agree to mutual recognition of standards. So it is possible for the UK to sign an agreement with Korea or even with the United States, for example, which is based on different standards, but then it wouldn't get mutual recognition with the EU, so it makes its access to the EU market more difficult. Conversely, if you take the EU-Korea agreement, there is some movement on mutual recognition of conformity assessment in that agreement, which essentially brings the Koreans more in line with the EU standards. So just like you just said, Samaya, if the UK rolls over that agreement with Korea, it is de facto and de jure in some sense in aligning itself to those EU regulations. Grandfathering or, or rolling over these 36 free trade agreements all sounds pretty difficult. So what would you say to those who think that the UK shouldn't do that and instead simply forge ahead with new deals with the United States, China, India, and those sorts of countries instead? I would say that sort of... Uh, a false hope, if you like. We already have agreements with a bunch of countries through the EU. It is surely easier to try and either roll these over or renegotiate these than start from scratch. It's well known that negotiating free trade agreements can take a long time and typically does take a long time. So the EU-Canada agreement took about seven or eight years to negotiate. The EU-US agreement has never been successful, has never been finalised. The EU has been trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with India since 2007. So yes, if the UK ends up not having a customs union arrangement with the EU, and therefore if it is trying to sign new trade agreements with countries, then clearly there are other countries it should look at. But in the first instance, it kind of makes more sense to try and roll over existing agreements that you already have, where already a lot has been negotiated, and the point that I guess this podcast is trying to say is even that is not going to be so straightforward. Signing new trade agreements is going to be even more complicated. Great. I think that's all from us. Michael, is there anything you would like to plug in the way of research that eager listeners should read? Um, no, I would like to plug an animated video that explains what we've just been discussing. Great. Have you guys seen the animated video? No, but Twitter will tweet it out. Tweet I'm it sure. out, because that it's, it's a good little video that explains these principles. Great. And it's only about four or five minutes long. That is all from Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Michael. We'll be sure to tweet out his work with Peter Holmes at the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And please do spread the word about Trade Talks. We'd really appreciate it. And if you have any feedback or ideas for stuff, then do let us know. 
So at this point, normally I'd say tweet to me at my Twitter handle, but I've actually stopped using Twitter. But you can find my contact details on my website, which is on my Twitter profile. So at Samaya Keynes. And I am still on Twitter. So I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Britain's need to negotiate existing trade deals, one just wasn't enough. And if I count right, I think we need like 37 underscores. Cool. Sound about right? <laughs>